We are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at two different stories that are really one story of the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look at three characters, two Marys and one Thomas. And uh, we're going to enter into the story in uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. It'll be up on the screen, and it starts like this. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So we have two Marys here. One is called the other Mary. This is Jesus's mother, uh, which I've always thought was kind of disrespectful. Uh, Jesus's mother and uh, the other Mary is Mary Magdalene. Jesus's mom finds herself at the tomb of Jesus after his death. It's the third day. He's about to be raised from the dead. Mary's just brokenhearted. Uh, the other Mary is also Mary Magdalene, was a friend of Jesus. But when Jesus met Mary Magdalene, all the Bible said about her was she was a sinner. The Bible doesn't say that about everybody. It says that all people have sinned, but specifically it calls her sin out as extraordinary in light of the community she lived in. So tradition has told us that possibly she was a prostitute. But one of the beautiful things about that is that Jesus responds to her in a way that nobody else did in culture. In fact, most people in culture would think Mary was somewhat of a trash person and untouchable. She wouldn't be in relationship with anybody. She wouldn't have friends Uh, She wouldn't be allowed to come to temple. She wouldn't be allowed around anyone for the most part because of what she had done and the reputation that she had acquired. Except Jesus was always fond of people who were on the periphery of society. He was always fond of the brokenhearted. The Bible says that Jesus is a friend to sinners. To those who did not measure up, to those who fell short, Jesus was always the friend. When Jesus meets uh, Mary for the first time, she is demon-possessed. And she has these seven demons that have been plaguing her, and Jesus comes in, and because he is life, and because he's God, and because where he is, there is wholeness, blessing, goodness, and restoration, Jesus comes to her and says, I want you to be whole. And he takes these demons, and he casts them from her. There's another story of Mary when she is coming to terms with her spiritual life. Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. His name is Simon. And Simon is a self-congratulating jerk. Simon is religious, he is self-righteous, and he has basically invited Jesus there so that he can find out what's wrong with Jesus. Well, as they reclined at dinner together, and in the Middle East, and especially in the first century, they didn't recline around tables or chairs. They laid down, and they had pillows, And they put the food in the middle, and everybody around the circle would basically sit there and talk to each other, reclining with their feet behind them. Well, as Jesus is talking to Simon and all the other guests who are present, Mary comes up behind him, and she bows down behind him. She takes his feet, which this is, you know, Galilee. It's filled with dust. It's dirty. Everybody walks around in sandals. His feet are a mess. So she takes this really expensive perfume, and she pours it over the feet of Jesus, Now, Simon doesn't say anything at this moment, but he is thinking in his head, and we get the text from the scriptures, but we get the subtext of his brain here at this moment. Jesus knows what he's thinking, and Simon is looking at Jesus, and he's going, what are you doing? Why would you let this trash person touch you? In the first century, Jesus, any rabbi, was not allowed to be with a woman by themselves unless it was their wife, and you certainly could never let a woman touch you, and you certainly could not let a woman of such ill repute touch you or come near you. Because to be associated with her would be as if you were to become what she is. And so he's sitting there with his self-congratulations and his pride and his arrogance and his self-righteousness. And he's looking at Jesus, who is 
Honestly, he's being kind and beautiful to a woman that everybody walks by, no one talks to. This is, she's a nobody. And she knows it. And she knows that she's a sinner. And she knows that she's a mess. And therefore, she's crying. The Bible says her tears are wetting the feet of Jesus. And her tears, she's pouring out her sadness. And there, Jesus is is receiving the oil, this really expensive perfume, this oil. And she's pouring it all over him. And she's taking her hair, and she's cleaning his feet. And Simon is just judging Jesus. Jesus turns to her finally, and he says, child, daughter, your, your, your faith has healed you. Your sins are forgiven. And Simon says, no one can forgive sin but God. And that's exactly the point. Jesus is the power of God, and he heals her heart in that moment. Not only does a man look at her and see her for something more than just her body, But Jesus sees her for who she really is and who she can be. In that moment, she's set free. And I don't know how how many of you grew up outside of the church. I think sometimes when you come to church and you see a person like me up here talking and knowledgeable about the Bible, you think, well, you grew up in the church. This is what you do when you grow up in the church. You have parents that taught you the Bible, and many people today make that a major objection to the Christian faith. They say, you're just handed down something that your parents told you, and that's what you believe. My parents did not know Jesus. I did not grow up in a Christian family. In fact, I grew up in a fa- with a father who was exceptionally violent. And I'll tell you more about him in a little while. But exceptionally violent, our place was not a place of haven. Uh, There's no peace there. It was a place that was scary in essence. But here, Jesus turns to this woman and he says, you're forgiven your sins and she was restored. And, and I remember the very first time that Jesus spoke to me and I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of strange because it's kind of supernatural. But I just heard God's voice say to me, I will never leave you, Michael, and I will never forsake you. And I needed to hear that, and I'll tell you why in a little while. But it set me free. And I remember immediately having all of the wickedness and sin that I've accumulated in my life, and it was a lot, just taken off my shoulders. And the the sense of joy and freedom that came, I can't imagine what it was like for Mary in the first century, Mary Magdalene, to be in that position, in that situation, and not only have a regular person, but a rabbi, somebody who is pious, a man of God, turn to her and say, your sins are forgiven. Everything has been washed clean. It changed her life. She followed Jesus from that point on for the rest of his life. And now we see her here following him in his death. She just needs to be near the tomb. So she comes to the tomb, Jesus' mother, same thing. I need to be near Jesus. Luke 7 47 shows the connection, the conversation that Jesus has with Simon, who's judging him. He says, look, Simon, you self-congratulating jerk. It's in Luke 7, 47. (laughs) I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. This morning, what I'm going to argue, and he turns and he says, but whoever has been forgiven little, Simon, loves little. I'm going to argue that there is, in essence, one thing that's necessary in order for you to love someone well, and that is trust. Trust is the necessary precondition for you to love another person well, and trust is the necessary precondition for you to be able to love God well. And one of the things that I'm going to argue this morning is that you don't need more information to follow God. What you need is a capacity to trust God. Mary's life was changed. My life was changed by simply God saying, I'll never leave you, Mike, and I'll never forsake you. I'll never walk away from you. And that's all I knew about God when I jumped in. That's it. I didn't know anything else. And I've been following him for 32 plus years. 
Back to the story. They've arrived at the tomb. Now God sends a messenger from heaven into the world. It's an angel. Verse 2. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. So God sends, in verse 2, an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. He wants to send a message. And the message is going to be very different for two groups of people that are present. The women that are present, the two Marys, and the people who are present. The other people who are here are Roman guards. Why are they here? One of the major objections throughout history about the resurrection of Jesus has been that people have claimed that somebody came and stole the body. I'm going to show you from history that it's impossible. That couldn't have possibly happened. In just a second. But he sends this angel, and the angel of the Lord comes down from heaven, and he goes to the tomb. Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. Now, it's really important for you to understand, lightning is not friendly. If you've ever been near a lightning strike, if you've ever seen a lightning strike before, it is absolutely terrifying if you've been close to one. Well, I just happened to be close to one. I was actually struck by lightning 21 years ago. That's funny for a pastor. (laughs) And so I was actually out doing a good deed, trying to help somebody in the church parking lot, right? A storm was coming in, one of our regular thunderstorms in the summer. And a lady came into the church and she said, my battery's dead. And I said, fine, I got some jumper cables. Grabbed my cable, started walking across the parking lot. And then I got to her car, and as soon as I attached them, bam, I was struck by lightning. And uh, the next thing I remember was laying on the ground, and some guy is straddled over me, and he's going like this, bam, bam. And I'm just like, who the heck is beating the crap out of me right now? It's the only thing I could think of. And I was like, oh, he watched too much ER. See, I, I don't know if he was trained to do that or whatever happened, but he was pounding on me, and uh, my wife is in the church, and the ambulance shows up, and Kelly goes, what's going on out there? And she goes, this lady goes, Mike Adkins was struck by lightning. She's like, what? And th- so the next thing I remember after that is there she is in, 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 the, in, the, in the ambulance as I get ready to go, and I've spent some hot time in the hospital after that. But lightning, there's nothing friendly about it. There's nothing comforting about it. There's nothing nice about it. In fact, it's shocking. Two, three services ago, somebody booed me for that joke. I was like, that is fantastic. But I also told them they weren't going to heaven. Um, so, you know, I promise it's my only dad joke. I got it. So his appearance was like lightning. That's intimidating. It's not something that is desirable to be around. So what happened? The guards were so afraid that they shook and they became like dead men. What does that mean that they became like dead men? It means they passed out. But what you need to know about these guards is... These guards were the guards of Pontius Pilate, the prefect of the Roman Empire. He served under King Herod, king of Judea, who served under Caesar Tiberius, Caesar over Rome. All three of these people were guarded by something called a praetorian, praetorian guard. Praetorian guard were some of the finest trained military soldiers in the Roman army, in the empire. They protected the most important people. And so many in the Roman Empire had heard that maybe there was a story about Jesus being raised from the dead. They were worried that this would cause confusion and that it would cause all kinds of trouble. So what happened was they went out and they put the Roman seal over the tomb of Jesus. And it basically said, if you break the seal, it is your death. Because they didn't want someone coming in specifically to take his body and proclaim, Jesus rose from the dead. So what they did was they put the Praetorian Guard out front. And there are the two Marys. (laughs) Let me take a look at the job description of a Praetorian guard. You tell me, are these guys going to be lackadaisical about their job? Here it is up on the screen. The Roman guard was a 16-man unit. This is it. If you ever thought there were two guys sitting around the tomb. No. 
It's a 16-man unit that was governed by very strict rules. Each member was responsible for six square feet of space. The guard members could not sit down or lean against anything while on duty. If a guard member fell asleep, he was beaten and burned with his own clothes. But he was not the only one executed. The entire 16-man guard unit was executed if one of the members fell asleep while on duty. It's not likely that somebody snuck by these guys, rolled back a several hundred pound rock, stole the body, and got out while the Roman garrison was there. It's impossible. It's not, a, it's not a likelihood that that would happen. But it's interesting because here these guys came down and they're standing there, they're guarding this. And so they're gonna see what happened. God sends a messenger into the world and boom, the earth shakes and here he comes. I've always considered it a sonic boom. You know, he's flying in at high speeds. I love it. Bam, there he is. He's sitting on the tomb, rolls back the rock. These guards see him, they're paralyzed in fear and they all pass out. The most highly trained soldiers in the world at that time. And then there were the two Marys. They didn't pass out. They're like, we've had children. This is nothing. It's a piece of cake. We're fine. But the angel did not comfort these men at all when they came down. In fact, I believe his primary goal was to intimidate them in this moment. Here's the reason why. Their whole reason for being there was to make sure Jesus never came out of the tomb. On the other hand, verse five, the angel said to the women, Mary, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Listen, when you're looking for Jesus, you never have to be afraid. When Jesus came to me, God came to me and told me those words, it changed my entire life, changed my children's life and hopefully generations of my family. And the reason for it was because he gave me what is necessary because he was gentle and he was kind. I was a sinner like Mary, wicked, angry, hateful, violent, and immoral. And it was one day that way, and the next day I was a completely different person. And it's because God came in and he changed. There's nothing to be afraid of when you're asking questions about God. The reason for that is because he loves you with all of his heart. His desire for you is only your good all the time. He's never had a cross thought that he wants to kill you and destroy you. God is holy, and the idea of holy means he always acts right accordingly. And he's always acted right according to you. Verse six, the greatest news in all of history. The angel sent down to send a message, and here it is. He is not here, he has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. So he takes the women and he escorts them into the tomb. Now, this is not a gravesite like you and I. It's not in the ground. This is a piece of stone that's carved like a, a, a rock face. And they carve into the stone and they carve a place to lay the body. And then they roll a giant stone over that tomb, right? Over the, over the, over the, 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 the doorway into that tomb. So the, the angels roll it back and he says, come on in and see this. Well, we know from other texts that as they walk in, here is, here is Jesus' place where he was lying, and there is his burial shroud, and it's all folded up nicely and neatly. The Bible actually says that. And I was like, why that information? I mean, I just avoid, I mean, Mary goes in, the mother of Jesus goes in, and she sees his clothes folded nicely on his bed. She's like, oh, he made his bed. You know, it's just like, like he was raised from the dead, and there he is. I mean, just think about like how strange it must have been to be Mary, to be the mother of Jesus Christ, the sinless person. Every single time she was frustrated with him, she was wrong. Like every time she was like, Jesus Christ, get in here right now. She was wrong. He's like, 
Didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? It had to be annoying. I mean, just a little bit. Verse seven, he said, come and see where Jesus lay. Verse seven says, go quickly and tell his disciples. So one of the things that's beautiful about this is that Jesus elevated the role of women in culture in the first century in a way that it had never been done before. In Greek and Roman cultures, women had certain rights, but in Jewish cultures, they had certain rights as well. But one of those rights was they were not valuable enough to be able to give testimony in court because a woman's opinion wasn't enough, or even her eyewitness. So he says, come and see. And then he says, go quickly and tell. The very first people that were sent to go and tell the world about Jesus were women. He says, go quickly and tell. God invites us to come and see and then go and tell. And the reason why we go and tell people about Jesus is not because there's a hard, fast rule called evangelism and this is what you need to do. It's really that when you have a real true encounter with God, and you'll know people that have a true encounter with God because they'll tell you about it. Because when you have a true encounter with God and God changes your heart and your life, because we are kind people, we want to pass that off to as many people as possible. Like when you find something wonderful in life, you know, and you're like, I want to just share this product with the world, or I want to share this service with a good girl, with the, with the world, or I, want to, I just want to share my life with somebody. You do that because you love them well. And we are kind people, and so we do that. We go quickly and tell the disciples. They went to him and say, hey, go tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. In other words, go to the town of Galilee. There you will see him. And they go, and Jesus reveals himself. Verse 8, so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy. I think there's always this combination when we encounter God. Because God is not like us, we are created in his image, but he is not like us. Because he is so different than we are, I think there are these times where there's just a sense of like intrepidation when you're in his presence. But also I think at the same time, there's a kind of joy, this unbridled wild joy that, that just wells up inside of a person because we're connected to the source of life and truth and goodness. And it's an amazing experience. I think sometimes, though, the reason why we don't connect to God is we find ourselves broken. We find ourselves broken because in order to be able to love someone well, including God or your neighbor or your wife or your husband, you have to trust them. And trust is broken sometimes by the experiences that we've had in the past. You don't need more information to to take your next step toward Christ. You need to trust. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs that you adhere to. It's a practice that you live. So I told you that my father was a violent man. Um... He was. He was a terrible man. My father, um, when we were young and all the way through my life, had a massive temper. And when something didn't go well or right in his life, he would blow up and get very violent, very tense and all of that. So I remember all kinds of stories from my childhood. But one, uh, this, this, this afternoon, I was about this tall and my parents were fighting back and forth. Now, my mom was um, in my life, but she was a person who was detached. And I think looking back on it, I think, I mean, she divorced my father when he, she was around 40 years old, and she died around 72, and she never had another relationship in her life ever again. And the reason was because I can't love someone unless I'm able to trust. And every single time you try to love someone, it's a risk. You're trusting that that person will steward well your heart and your life. And so my mom just had such a bad example of that, and she was the person also being abused. And so she spent a lot of her life just trying to, to rescue herself and to stay okay, to stay alive. And so one day, I, I was listening to them fight back and forth. And for me, you know, a lot of times I would just tune into the television and try to escape all that. It was just a constant process in the background to hear them screaming at each other. But then I heard somebody throw a plate or something like that. I don't know who it was. But then I saw my dad throwing stuff and, at my mom. 
And I just turned the corner into the kitchen, and, and my father grabbed my mom by the shoulders and slammed her against the wall. And uh, she started to cry. And he was just pointing his finger at her, and he was screaming at her, and he was calling her a piece of garbage. And uh, I had two emotions. And one was, like, I hate this. I hate him. I want to help, but I have no strength. He's scary. And so I just mustered it up. I came over, and I slammed my fist as hard as I could into the side of his leg like this, which ticked him off. He grabbed me and slammed me against the wall, and he was choking me. He was supposed to. He was supposed to protect me. He was supposed to watch over me. He's my dad. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to live through this. And it puts something deep inside. And you have your own version of that story. Stuff that's not surface level. Stuff that just like tainted you. And after that, I became a violent person because I said to myself, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let the, anything happen to me like that ever again. I'm gonna be strong and I'll be as aggressive as I need to be. And all through like my elementary years, I remember chucking my, you know, when something happened in school I didn't like, I'd chuck my chair at the teacher. Through junior high, I got into fights over and over again. This is when you could get paddled in school. I was in there overtime, getting paddled over and over and over again. Ovito High School fights, all kinds of stuff. I just... I was a mess. And part of it was because I watched this guy who was supposed to be the one that protected me, and I hated him so much, and I became just like him. And it wasn't a choice, except that the choice was made, and the choice was, I'm not gonna be vulnerable with anyone. Because when I was vulnerable with somebody before, they took my vulnerability and they abused it. So I'll be strong. But in trying to be strong, I became weak. And it wasn't until Jesus came in and said, hey, I will... I will Never leave you, and I will never forsake you, because I never had someone watching over me. He said, I will watch over you for the rest of your life, to the end of your years. And he's, he's, he's done that for 30 years plus. And he'll do that till the day that I close my eyes. And then he'll watch over me for the rest of my life, forever and ever and ever. You see, I don't think we need more information. I think what we need is... Trust. See, we act like this most of the time anyway. You, you just need to realize that sometimes when it comes to dealing with our issues with God, we kind of cloud it up a little bit. And we make different standards for ourselves. But you and I trust all of the time, really literally risking our lives to trust people. You know, um, a few uh, years ago, like before COVID and, you know, all of that stuff that took place, I was preaching a message and I was talking about Paris and how one day I would love to go to Paris and some kind person, this is anonymous, I have no idea who you are, but uh, some kind person in the church bought my wife and I a trip to Paris, which we're going on in four or five weeks, which we're really excited about, right? I mean, yeah, it was, it was incredible. It was amazing. Um, I also like Greece. Um, <laughs> But I'm also a little bit like nervous about, about you know, flying 
uh, over the ocean like that. It's the first time my wife and I have ever traveled out of the country together. We're really excited about it. But I'm also a little bit nervous. But, you know, as, as many of you know that I, I uh, that attend church here regularly, um, I'm also a counselor. I was a counselor before a pastor. And uh, I've never actually gotten on the plane and asked the, asked the, <laughs> asked the guy who I'm putting everything in his, li- in, his li- in his hands, my life in his hands. I've never gone on there and said, hey, pilot, hey, um, how's your marriage going right now? You, you good? You good? Everything good in your life right now? I've never administered a psychological test on Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory. I've never said, hey, can I check your psychopathology right now to see if you're a lunatic? You know what, you, you know what we do is we actually trust that that guy's not having a bad day and just going to slam the plane into the ground. When we think things like that, we think, no, no, don't think that. Don't think that. Think something else. Think beautiful things. Think great things, right? This is what we do. Why? Because you don't need more information, Here's what we know. We know that those pilots and pilots just in general, they show up all of the time and they, they fly the planes. They, they get us to where we're going on time-ish. And as they get us there, they are, keep us safe over and over and over again. And we can just look back on experience and go, experience would say that most of the time these guys are gonna do the right thing. Therefore, I don't need to test him in order to be able to trust him. You know what? The Lord has been with you every day of your life. And I'm talking to you, non-religious person. He has been with you every day of your life. And he has loved you every single day of your life. He created you. He purposed your heart and your life to come into this world. And you go, well, where was he? I mean, Pastor Mike, I went through some tough tough stuff too. Your stuff may have been worse than my stuff. And you're like, where was he when all of these bad things were happening? What's going on? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that question. Here's what I do know. I do know that you're still here. And so whatever you went through, you woke up the next morning. That somebody probably came along at some point and spoke kindness to you. That somebody may have changed your circumstances, orchestrated a new beginning for you. Or you had the strength to say, I'm changing things right now. And God gave you that strength. Nothing happens by synchronicity, chance, randomness. It's not some chaotic causation. It's purpose and intention. The Father has always been with you. Even if you've never been with him, his heart is 100% for you. And so we need to realize it's not about just more information. It's about trusting him. As we jump in to the second part of the story, we look at John. We look at the book of John, chapter 20. It's about Thomas. And Thomas is one of the disciples. He's seen Jesus doing miraculous things. And Thomas finds himself, after the resurrection of Jesus, away from the other disciples. The other 11 disciples are with each other. They're worried, they're concerned, they're overwhelmed. And what we see is that most of them, just in the intervening times after the death of Jesus, they go back to doing the things that they were doing before. Some of them were fishermen, went back to the boats, started fishing again. Thomas is by himself, though. He is undone. Sometimes I think the people who are damaged the most are the people who actually love the most, because you're willing to take the biggest risks. And when they don't work out, sometimes it is demolishing. And I think Thomas is demolished here. He comes back, Jesus returns, but he's only there with the 11. They've gathered together. Thomas is by himself. He's sulking, he's worried, he's concerned, he's overwhelmed. And Jesus comes back. And he misses him. He misses him because he placed all of his hope and all of his expectations and all of his trust in Jesus. And then Jesus just turned around and died. I have in my hands the greatest soap in history. I'm not talking to you ladies. You can tune out. This is for the guys. 
This, is, this soap is, I've had one bar of this soap in my uh, shower for a year, all right? Because it takes two layers of skin off every time you use it. It's legit, okay? The company is called Duke Cannon. Nothing could be more butch than that, all right? Duke Cannon, okay? It, I, I think it may, maybe it could be like, I don't know, Dodge Bullet or something like that. I don't know, something, some kind, something like that. But Duke Cannon, this is the big American bourbon soap. So, soap. It's made with 90-proof Kentucky straight bourbon. So if I smell like bourbon, you know why. <laughs> and if you don't like it, you can chew on it. It has a great effect, all right? But this soap, it smells so good. It literally smells like a lumberjack beat up a bartender. I'm telling you, it is like the greatest stuff. You can be elbow deep in grease changing tire on a motorcycle, which I have never done. <laughs> but you could. You could rub this on you, and it would all go away. I think for some of us, we spend a lot of time in our life just trying to scrub away the effects of what's happened to us in life, the bad choices that we've made, the things that have happened to us. And you've scrubbed and you've scrubbed and you've scrubbed and you don't feel clean. No matter how hard you've tried, no matter what you've used, you've done it over and over and over again. You're still anxious, you're still fearful, you're still worried, you're still unforgiving, you're still angry. And it does not go away. And I think the reason for that is because, not because you need more information, but because you need to take a step of trust that God can take the brokenness of your past and use it for purposes that will be more beautiful in the end. He can heal you. He can change you. He can transform you. But some wounds are not surface-level things. For some of us, we've done a great job of scrubbing the outside so well that when people look at us, they go, wow, they're together, and everything seems to be great in their life. But you know it's a lie. Because on the inside, where things really reside, you're a mess. Because just like me, things were placed into you a long time ago that you've spent the rest of your life trying to get rid of. I'm here to tell you, the only way around that is to have Jesus on the inside of you, to allow him to heal and to restore and to change things. We can't fix ourselves. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. So Jesus comes back to the 11, but Thomas is missing. And so they go to Thomas, they go, hey, Thomas, Thomas, we found you. Listen, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see, I'm not gonna believe. Unless I see, I will not believe. This is what we do. Another way of him saying this is, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he says, unless I see, I won't believe. Another way of saying that is, no, you didn't see him. You didn't see him. You need to understand, these 11 guys were Thomas's best friends. For three years, they walked with Jesus and saw Jesus transform lives, listened to his teachings, watched him take a guy paralyzed for 37 years and say, get up, take your mat and go home. And he walks away. Takes some mud and puts it in a guy's eyes and the guy sees commands demons to flee a person, and they do. Jesus, he's seen all of these miracles. In fact, Thomas doesn't need faith because he has evidence in front of him. And even though he has all of the information that he needs, there's something blocking him from trusting that Jesus has returned, and it's this. It's that when you and I get hurt, we start putting hoops around the people that we love and God and say, unless I see my marriage fixed, God, I won't trust you. Unless I 
have my anxiety healed, I won't trust you. Unless you help me stop being angry about the abuse that I suffered, I will not trust you. Unless you make me whole, I'm not going to trust you. And so what we do is we put these, because in order to love someone well, you have to trust. So we start putting these hoops around God, and we start putting hoops around other people. And you'll know a person like this because they'll say, sure, I'll be your friend if you do these things for me. And it's not their fault. It's just a defense mechanism that they've made in their life to try to protect themselves because they're not willing at this point to trust. And so we put all these hoops around people in our lives. It pushes them away. It keeps them distant. And this is exactly what Thomas is doing with Jesus. We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. I refuse a week later, because God was not satisfied with leaving him alone, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And this time, Thomas is with them. Through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Interesting detail again. Jesus just seems to walk through the door. And then he says, peace be with you. I'm like, no, no thanks. You just walk through a door. Um, peace be with you is an interesting phrase for him to say to them right now. Because the disciples have already seen him. I think Jesus here is speaking specifically to Thomas because in this text, he ignores everybody else. And he goes directly to Thomas. Hey, Thomas, peace be with you. Then he comes up to Thomas. He walks up to him. And I just can't imagine what Thomas felt like. I mean, imagine just the sense of both exhilaration that you see Jesus and he's come back and all of your hopes are not dashed. And yet at the same time, the shame of knowing that you've walked away and you didn't believe. And Jesus walks up to Thomas and he says, Thomas, put your fingers here in my hands. Reach out and place your finger in my side where the Roman spear pierced my heart. Touch me, it's me. And he takes Thomas's face and he says, he, makes him, he commands him and it's gentle and beautiful and kind. And he says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas crumbles to a ball it just says, my Lord and my God. And his life is all altered from that point on. The phrase doubting Thomas comes to us because of this guy. That's so unfair. Thomas leaves here. And tradition and history tell us that Thomas went to India. He converted tons of people. There are churches devoted to Thomas here, there to this very day. He spent the rest of his life in faith. He had a moment of disbelief, just like many of us, where he said, unless I see what kind of hoops are you asking God to jump through in order for you to be in relationship with him? Because I can promise you this, he never put one hoop in front of you. He didn't say, start acting like this and become my follower. Stop thinking like that and become my follower. Do more of this and become my follower. He didn't do any of that. He just simply said, in order to become my follower, you simply have to trust me. And guys, you cannot love the people in your world, God or your family in a perfect way, in a great way, unless first you trust. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that. So everybody close your eyes if you would right now. This is for those who are like, I need to take a step of trust. It's not about more information. It's about me saying, I'm going to trust Jesus with my life. And over here on the left side of the room, we're going to start. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to say, I'm all in Jesus. Like, I want to trust you with my life. I want to give you my life. I'm going to make you the leader over my life. I've been leading so far and it's led me in the direction I don't need to go. I wanna trust you. I wanna love you. 
And so I'm just going to ask that same thing. If, if you're in with that, I just want you to look up at me in just a second. It's just going to be you and me and God. Everyone else has their head bowed. I'm not going to embarrass you. But just look up at me. I'll acknowledge you. And then you just put your head back down. We're going to start over here on the left side of the room. Don't hesitate. Just go ahead up. Look up right now. Yes, 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 sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, in the back. Yes, sir, in the back. I see you. Yes, sir. If you just looked up at me, take a moment. Let's pray. Just quietly in your hearts. Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life. I need you to heal brokenness inside of me. I need you. I need you to make me whole. And I know that's a process going to take the rest of my life. But I want to trust you. I'm tired of not trusting. I'm tired of not loving people well. I want to do that. I ask forgiveness for my sins because I've blown it at times. I've not only not lived up to my own standards, I know I haven't lived up to yours. I invite you now to take leadership in my life. I want you to guide me. I want you to lead me. And I'm going to do my best and it's never going to be perfect. But I'm going to do my best to follow you and follow hard after you. And Father, I know that when I'm praying this prayer right now, that I don't know everything there is to know about you. And I probably never will. But I'm just gonna act on what I know right now, that you love me and that you've always been with me. And that's enough. I'm gonna just continue to learn and I'm gonna continue to grow. Thank you for coming into my life and loving me in this moment. It's in your name I pray, amen.